She had made me a tea, as was our custom, every single morning at 7.30. I sat across from her at the small kitchen table with the plastic bread of life and the salt and pepper shakers between us. She insisted I have some toast before I went off to seminary for my morning class. I'd given up fighting her on it. After all, she was gracious enough to let me and Amy live in her basement while I finished my final year of Bible college. What are you learning this week, she'd often ask me. I was just in my early 20s and her edging her middle 70s. It was an amusing question as I looked at her well-worn Bible sitting on the kitchen table. It had seen over five decades of affection. Her faith and that book had helped her weather some of life's most difficult times. I thought of the Second World War that took her husband away and left her to raise her kids alone for years. I was sitting in the home that he built for her that is half a block away from where I preached this morning. Her faith carried her through his early death after he came home from the war while she was still in her 40s and she raised those four kids alone. I don't know if I can actually say alone, though. She was part of a vibrant faith community within walking distance of her house. To say that Amy's grandmother was a follower of Jesus is a given. Her life, a living example of one who truly understands the power of faith and who embodied the love of God. That's why it was so heartbreaking for me to have to break the bad news to her that her theology was dead wrong. I had just told her that we were studying eschatology at school, the end times. Her interest peaked as if she'd never heard the word before. Subconsciously, I felt like a victory for my ego was present. I couldn't hold a match to the amount of scripture verses that she had memorized or the reasons that led to her holding on to those truths she's discovered in them or to the difficult life that she'd lived. But I knew more about the rapture. I knew more about the coming tribulation, the mark of the beast, and the abomination that causes desolation than she would ever know. I was in the cocky phase that can often happen to young seminarians, used to spending hours debating what seemed like life-changing ideas but are actually useless distractions from what faith is and should be really about. I'll never forget to listening to a bunch of, of the more academic senior students debating in the student lounge about what it would have been like if the disciples had collected the blood of Jesus as he died on the cross. Imagine what they could have done with that, they were asking. I shake my head now. But this is what happens when you reduce faith to a puzzle to be solved. When you begin to believe that Jesus left behind an esoteric hope that only a few would discover, and it was up to them to fill everybody else in on the Bible codes. When I had finished explaining to my, to Amy's grandmother all about the seven-year tribulation and what the signs of the end were, I expected her to be more impressed. Instead, she just continued eating her plain toast with butter. <clears throat> she explained her simple understanding of what she thought the return of Christ would be like. In all seriousness... She looked at me and said, I believe Christ comes again through the actions and lives of those who trust and follow him. The first coming was as a human child, and the second is through you and me. I was speechless. I mean, what an oversimplification. Didn't she know how much more detailed and complicated it was? Had she not read Hal Lindsey, The Light Great Planet Earth? Has she not watched Left Behind or A Thief in the Night? No, she hadn't. Nor did she care to. She wasn't paranoid, stocking food in her basement. She wasn't going about her life as 
she was going about her life as best she could, making a difference the only way she could, being her. And that's how she would live her life. I never had the chance to tell her that her idea actually moved me, that her simplicity, the beauty in what she believed, whether true or not, they empowered her towards love and hope. And there was never a shred of fear or doom in her theology. And she lived through a couple of wars. She had seen a darker life than me, for sure. Now, I grew up in a rural community. There was lots of talk about the end of the world and this small church that, that I cut my teeth in. It was terrifying for an 11-year-old to be told that they may have to get their head chopped off if I was to miss the rapture. That was the only way I'd get my place in heaven. I meet people each week still living with that religious trauma of their youth, largely surrounding these ideas. Here's what I've learned. That if faith is about protection from sin, from consequences, and ultimately from God's wrath, then the language of your faith is about fear. And that is the lens by which you will read the Bible and the news headlines. But if faith for you is about connection, connection to God, connection to each other, and connection to God's good creation, then the language of your faith will be about love. And that will be the lens by which you read scriptures and read the news. You see, where you start determines where you end. So, in Mark's biography of Jesus, the earliest of all four Gospels written, many believe that Matthew and Luke had access to a copy of Mark when they wrote their own biographies. Mark writes about an interesting interaction during the days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion that is retold by Matthew and Luke. Here's how Mark first records it, though. This takes place after the triumphal entry, after Jesus has turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple. And Jesus continues in the following days to visit the temple because this is the week of Passover. There's so much to do. And this is what Mark writes in chapter 13. He says that as Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what magnificent stones, what magnificent building the temple is. Jesus looked at him and said, Do you see this great building? Not one stone will be left upon another. They will all be torn down. And as they walked across from the temple towards the Mount of Olives and sat down with the temple in full view, Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately. I don't know where the rest of the disciples were, but these four came to him privately, Mark writes. And they asked Jesus, tell us, when will these things come about? And what will be the sign when all these things are fulfilled? You know, that's a good question. I'd be asking too. So let's stop here for a minute because I think there are some ideas here at the beginning that desire to influence the direction of where everything goes from here. So before we get into some pretty incredible apocalyptic language, let's first establish something really important. Jesus is coming out of this massive temple complex in Jerusalem. This temple is magnificent. Historians record walls up to 20 stories high in certain places, with stones over 24 feet long, some weighing over 100 tons. Considered to be one of the ancient wonders of the world, it was 10 football fields end-to-end, almost 40 acres in size. Some of the outer walls covered with plates of gold that glowed in the rising sun, as the historian Josephus would write. It was stunning. 
And Mark and the other Gospels as well record one of the disciples bringing up to Jesus the magnificence of the temple itself. Do you see these great stones? One of the Gospels records. These wonderful buildings. And Jesus responds, yeah, I do. And you see these magnificent stones and walls. Not one of them will be left standing. They will be utterly destroyed. The statement must have seemed like more of Jesus' hyperbole. The way he told stories. Immediately, they walked across from the temple to the Mount of Olives and sat down where only four of the disciples asked them, tell us more, tell us more. What comes next, we must remember, is a direct answer to that private question. Mark is recording Jesus' historical answer in place and time to a historical question. Why do I emphasize this? That, that it was a private conversation? Because Jesus never preaches to the multitudes that the end is near. He instead preaches that the kingdom is near. The kingdom is close. The kingdom is within reach, he says at the very beginning of Mark's gospel. That peace is near. That the mercy is accessible. That comfort is attainable. That those who hunger for God's justice can experience it. That those with a pure heart will see the divine now. The Sermon on the Mount contains not one piece of apocalyptic doom, but instead how the kingdom of God can and is experienced now. That's why he says, you will be the light of the world when he finishes his Sermon on the Mount. Now Jesus was known for his inspiring, hopeful message to the crowds. Also for his challenging message to set aside our agendas for God's, our kingdoms for his, especially when he spoke... Uh, to leaders, religious leaders, he did speak about consequences, especially in relation to injustice and oppression. But he taught us to seek first God's world and that everything else would sort itself out. But here in this private conversation, Jesus tells the disciples that this magnificent temple with its ancient stone foundations will be decimated. I can't help but wonder if he's just saying dramatically what he's been saying for over three years in other ways. Be careful what you put your trust in. What are the foundations of your faith? Choose carefully. Jesus will tell all who listen that the foundations of our life should be on his teachings, not on the institutions or traditions. Jesus' own words, if you build your life on my teachings, my radical kingdom ideas, you will withstand even the strongest of storms. But building them on anything else. And you run the risk of them being destroyed by the storms of life. Building them on institutions, traditions, doctrines, dogmas is like building on sand. Only days before this encounter, Jesus was about to ride into the city on a donkey in an event that we call the Triumphal Entry or Palm Sunday. Matthew records something in that entrance into the city that the other gospel writers don't. In chapter 19, verse 42, he says that as Jesus came closer to Jerusalem, and he saw the city ahead of him. He began to weep, saying, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. But now it's too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize when God visited you. Wow. I know this is written in place and time, but I can't help but think of its implications for me. 
Jesus goes on to describe a time of great devastation that will come in Mark's account of chapter 13, when he's telling the disciples of what the end will look like. It'll be great devastation, but not because God's punishing them. It'll be because they don't recognize that another way has been made, a way of peace embodied in Jesus and his teachings. He predicts the end of the Jewish world, the complete and utter destruction of the temple, leveled to ruins, which seems like an absolute impossibility. This thing is magnificent, both building and the institution. But Jesus said it'll utterly be devastated. And then he continues to warn them in the rest of Mark chapter 13. Here's a, here's a couple sound bites. Listen, others will come when I am gone, claiming that they are the one to liberate the Messiah. But don't be led astray. There will be conflict and violence, but this isn't the end. The earth will shake. There will be famines, but this is only the beginning, birth pains. You will be persecuted and beaten in synagogues by the authorities because you're a part of another kingdom. It will be terrible, unlike anything you've ever experienced. Then Jesus begins to use some apocalyptic language familiar to his listeners. It's a genre. He says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shine, the stars will fall from the heavens, the son of man will be seen on the clouds, coming with power and glory, and his angels will gather this them and his angels will gather his own from all over the four corners of the world. Then he says, and I truly say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. But concerning the day or hour, nobody knows. So be on guard. This is important to know that when epiphanic language is used in apocalyptic writing like this, it's used as a way of honoring God. It's not to be taken literally. I just learned this this week from author Mark Davis. Um, I, I bought a book of his 10 years ago, and uh, it was incredibly influential in my understanding of this whole language. And I reached out to him this week in an email just to see if he was accessible, and he was. And it was great. He emailed me back, and he just helped me see these ideas in a whole new way. The use of epiphanic language is not to be taken literal. It, it's, it's that God is not ordinary, so ordinary language cannot be used to describe how God must feel, and how the universe will react. Extraordinary language is needed to describe this. And for those who want to understand this and respect this genre that, that this portion is written in, you need to understand it in order to appreciate how the disciples and those listening are understanding this. And Jesus is predicting the end of the Jewish world as a direct result of their unwillingness to acknowledge that God's presence has come among them. That violence has been rejected, or that, that violence has been rejected as a means to usher in another world, that the good news has come. God is here. Change your thinking to a better way, he says, and experience the reality of God's good world among us. And 40 years after Jesus said these words, in April of the year 70, only three days before Passover, the Roman general Titus would invade the city, would siege the city, a city filled with pilgrims, three days before Passover, filled to the brim with pilgrims. And Roman general Titus, under the direction of his father, Emperor Vespasian, laid siege to Jerusalem. 
the city had been taken over by several Jewish factions in the period of time before, and they had they were led by zealots promising victory over Rome. There had been a period of massive unrest, and Rome was done. Rome was fed up, and they sieged the city. And within weeks, the Roman army broke through the first two massive walls of the city of Jerusalem, but they'd been reinforced by those defending the city from within, History records that that rebel standoff prevented the Romans from breaking through that third and thickest wall, and while they prevented them, Rome starved those inside. Thousands remained, thousands remained in the city, and they starved, many of them. The enraged Romans finally not only besieged the city, but torched it and decimated, stripped the temple bare. The first century historians record that a possibility of upwards of a million Jews were killed during the siege. Many historians say that number is, is way too big, but regardless, they all agree at least 97,000 survivors were enslaved. Titus returned to Rome after victory, parading items stolen from the temple's holy of holies, items that had never been seen by anybody but a high priest. The Jewish world had come to a violent end. Everything Jesus had said would happen did. And Judaism was changed forever. And Jesus was right. When Mark recorded him as saying in chapter 13 that the, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of his own, he shortened the days. Here's the thing. There's so much we don't understand. But remember, the people Jesus is speaking to don't fully understand it either. The arrogance of modern televangelists with their end-time charts having mapped out the tribulation claiming to finally have figured out the secret message of the scriptures and uncoded the book of Revelation. Honestly, the more you study history, the more you learn about the present. There's an element to what Jesus speaks of that's bigger than just those events of his own day for sure. But we must first ask, why is Jesus speaking about this? Who is he speaking to and why is this gospel writer recording this? It's interesting to know that in all of the Apostle Paul's letters that make up the majority of the New Testament, most of them contain language around the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world. There's this strong anticipation for the imminent return of Christ. You can't get around it. But consider that most of Paul's epistles were written before the Gospels were ever written, and all of them before the year 70 AD. Paul is thought to have died around 68. It's possible that most, if not all, of the scriptures were written before this cataclysmic event. And when we ignore the significance of the event itself, we can push so much of what Jesus meant for those days, those in his day, to our day exclusively. And we need to be careful. So the implications to this for me are this. I think if Jesus was to come and live among us now, his message would be the same. He would tell us that another world is within reach, a more beautiful way to exist is here and now, but we'll have to change our thinking to perceive it, to allow it to break through. We'll have to change our thinking about power, about violence, about forgiveness, about love, about hope, about all things. And he would remind us that if we embrace what he has lived and taught, a new world will break through. But I spent enough time with those who are hoping for an end to this world. I grew up in it. I studied it. I propagated it for way too long. Faith had become about protection, and I read scriptures the way they did. I filled my mind with left-behind fiction. I know how easy it is to get sucked into seeing all the problems in this world. 
You only need to be on TikToksic for a solid minute and you realize that it's a haven for doomsayers claiming secret knowledge about God. You see, when you can't find God here, now, when the world seems too far gone, so against everything you've come to believe, and you know you're right because, after all, everyone else is wrong, your faith is oppositional, of course you want Jesus to come and rescue you because all of this just needs to burn. But when you can find God here, now, in the present, when you can find his presence and beauty in the lives of those around you, when you can find the divine humbly riding the donkeys of this world into our lives, then the incentive isn't to leave, but to be with God, to be here in God's good world. When your definition of faith is built around God protecting you, fears your language, it comes easy. But when you have found God in pain and suffering, and when you can experience the divine and the beautiful as well as the difficult, you realize the kingdom of God is all around and I don't need to leave. I need to wake up. I think if Jesus would ride into many of our churches and religious institutions as he did before, he would weep again, as Matthew records, still saying, if they only knew the way of peace, if they only recognized that God has visited them and was here now, it would be enough. You know, the end of the world comes every day for so many. Just ask those in the Ukraine, in Syria. Just ask those who witnessed Auschwitz or Hiroshima or Columbine. The list goes on. I think instead of waiting for God to come and bring it all to an end, we should recognize and realize that Jesus is saying that God is waiting for us to wake up, to start something, not merely end something. The world begins again each day with the choice to see God at work and redeeming, standing with those who are hurting and lost, empowering men and women towards change and hope. Thinking back to my conversation with Amy's grandmother, that one morning over toast and tea, her ability to understand the latest theories on the second coming of Christ pretty weak, but her experiencing God's coming into her life was unmistakable. Her trust that when whatever may come, God has been enough for her and will continue to be enough. Of all the things she wasn't clear on, that wasn't one of them. She knew. And now she's wrapped in the arms of love and her knowing is complete. And her memory still inspires my theology more than Kirk Cameron does. 